previously on Alibi. Personally, I would never, you know, if the guy didn't have other bullet holes, uh, I wouldn't be as bold as to say it's a bullet abrasion. I would just record it on my notes as an abrasion. He was found guilty because of, what's that term again they use in... Yeah, common purpose. That's the same as Anthony. But is he okay support, like defending himself? What must he do for? I'm Freddie Mabitella and welcome to Alibi. We're now at episode 7 of our series. A series that's about finding out if a man called Anthony de Vries is innocent or guilty of his crimes. Now, Anthony has been in jail for 17 whole years. Now, we're almost at the end of our series. You know, next week is the final episode. And what we have here is a guy who has been convicted of two counts of murder, attempted murder, and robbery. And next week, all of this has to be wrapped up. We need to know if he's innocent or has been wrongfully convicted. Now, I have to be honest with you. A few weeks back... When we found a report from the prison doctor saying that Anthony has suffered a bullet graze, I thought, this is it. You know, we finally have a damning piece of evidence that says, hey, Anthony, so you were shot at, so you are guilty. And then, last week, we also found out that the bullet graze evidence used against Anthony was not necessarily conclusive. The guy who has uncovered this and has been investigating Anthony's case is a journalist by the name of Paul McNally. Hey, Freddie. It's really, really good to be here. We've looked into Anthony's story, we've looked into Anthony's alibi, and we've looked into the evidence that has been provided against him, but we still haven't focused on his co-accused. Stephen Kwanazi and Kelvin Collins were allegedly in the BMW that Anthony DeFries was meant to have been driving. Yes, Stephen and Calvin were arrested after the car crashed with the truck. And then the driver supposedly fled. And if you remember, the police only really caught these guys because of the car crash. Yeah, otherwise they probably would have sailed off into the sunset. Oh, you know, it would have been a perfectly executed crime and would have never had none of this. (laughs) Okay, so these are your co-accused. Yeah, those the the two guys you saw in those pictures. Yeah. There, There was one guy, the one guy was from Soweto. And the other guy, I don't know, he was from Hilbro or what. Because it said in the appeal that they, that you guys all knew each other, so you guys didn't know each other. No, we didn't know each other. We started knowing each other. Where we actually started really knowing each other was in when we were together in waiting trial. Warrant Officer Jacques Marais said that after interviewing the suspects, he determined that the co-accused knew each other. This assumption by Marais that Anthony knew his co-accused was brought up at trial. The idea that the three of them knew each other and that they weren't just randomly picked up strengthens the idea that they were a gang. However, in Gibson and Rekart's lost statements, they contradicted Marais and said that the two co-accused, Calvin and Stephen, introduced themselves to Anthony when they were brought to the BMW crash. So Paul, Marais says Anthony could have been friends with these guys. Meanwhile, the other cops said the exact opposite. Yeah, in the statements that were hidden and never went to trial. And we know that actually Marais has a history with Anthony. So this is fueled by that feud between them. Yeah, maybe. Calvin Collins' story was that no, he he had a 
flat wheel somewhere. The one said he had a, he had a flat wheel and he was with a, he was rolling a tire when they caught him, when they arrested him. Because me, when I came there, both of them, they were arrested because me, I was brought. Anthony says that his co-accused were very keen on saying how they were not in the BMW. Calvin's story was similar to Anthony's in depicting how innocent he was and how it was all a series of unfortunate events. This is despite Calvin being arrested supposedly straight out of the BMW. They found gun residue on Calvin Collins. It was on his left hand and damningly matched a gun found in the BMW. Now, that basically puts Calvin, the co-accused, in the BMW. Okay, so here's Anthony awaiting trial for five months. And then what happens next? Well, he gets bail. They all do. Stephen and Calvin as well and Anthony, they all get bail. Wow, so he's granted bail, pays it off, gets to walk free, Stephen and Calvin the same, and then... What did you think was going to happen? Did you think you would just... I actually thought nothing was going to happen of the case. But Anthony was dead wrong. Something definitely did happen. Anthony went to trial in 1998. And in those intervening years between bail and trial, his co-accused, Stephen and Calvin, died. So wait, so wait, Calvin and Stephen died? What happened is during that, when we attended uh, trial, the families of the one first came and said, no, the one was passed, passed away. And then afterwards, the relatives of the other one also came to court and they brought a death certificate of the other one to show that he was passed away also. Anthony continued to claim he only met his co-accused on the day of the arrest. But with Stephen and Calvin now dead... This became a more difficult point to prove. For me, I was the only one uh, that was that was standing trial for the case. The trial was quick, hey, like three days. I've never seen a, a, a quick trial like that in my life. It was just like they knew what they were wanted to do and what they were going to do. Justice de Klerk convicted Anthony under common purpose. Now, common purpose is interesting because it is about being arrested as part of a group. But as we've seen with Anthony, his group is all dead. So basically, if we commit a bank robbery together and you shoot one of the guards, I could face charges of murder for what you've done. But this common purpose thing, you know, is puzzling. This is, it's, it's odd. It's a very odd conviction. It's just really, this is... This is really just throwing him in jail. They pretty much made a join-the-dot scenario where they linked the murders to the BMW and then they linked the BMW to Anthony. And then they piled everything on top of Anthony. Here's me speaking to him. Obviously, they said the BMW and the buggy were in cahoots. But what the judge actually ended up saying, he said, no, the BMW, they don't have proof the BMW was on the scene. They said the BMW yeah. was not even on the scene of crime. They said, the judge said, the BMW was used as a supporting vehicle for that crime. So I don't even understand how could I be sentenced for murder if they said that no, the BMW was not even on the scene. So Paul, this is why Anthony went to jail for double murder, right? Double attempted murder and robbery. And they only needed to connect him to driving the BMW. 
And everyone knows that common purpose was also a notorious tool that was used during apartheid to just convict people. According to our friend Talani Nkorsi, an advocate from the Vitz Law Clinic, it is incredibly unique to be in Anthony's situation and handed a full sentence for all the crimes committed. Do you think there's a danger, though, for wrongful conviction and for people being rounded up when they haven't actually done anything wrong? Of course, wrong? of course. In fact, wrongful conviction exists um, in all instances, you know, because ultimately it's, it's, it's what evidence the prosecution brings, you know, before court to determine whether or not a particular person is guilty. But of course, I mean, a wrongful, wrongful conviction lives with us as lawyers all the time. We're mindful of it. So you don't think that common purpose holds a particular danger for this? I do think it does, but I think it's in the implementation of the common purpose doctrine where you kind of like mitigate against that particular danger. The quality of representation is very, very important. According to Talani, it's the implementation of common purpose that's key. In other words, how it's handled in court. Basically, this is strike one against Anthony's justice. Common purpose is an easy way to abuse people if they don't have a decent lawyer who can fight back. So Anthony is convicted in 1998 and he lands up in jail. Did he ever get a chance to make an appeal? Yeah, at the end of the trial, he got the chance for leave of appeal. And Selwyn, his brother, actually immediately put his efforts into an appeal case. He immediately fired their trial lawyer outright and shifted to a guy called Dumisani Hamilton Zondi. Now this is in April 1998. Zondi prepared a huge mass of paperwork in order to contest the conviction. But he made a mistake. Okay, let me guess this right. So now, Zondi makes a mistake. And did Selwyn fire him too? He totally fired him. They actually together went through a whole lot of different attorneys and eventually landed on advocate Desmond Brown. Okay, Desmond Brown, the name sounds uh, familiar. Is it the same advocate we were introduced to in last week's episode? Yeah, this is the same advocate. The one we tracked down from going to de Stup in a previous episode. And he scheduled an appeal for the 4th and 5th of June, 1999. Here's Desmond describing that day. On the date, uh, you know, the, the hearing, you know, the appeal was supposed to be heard. It was one of the worst rainstorms that we'd had, you know, in the history of, of the country. And the Pretoria Johannesburg Road was notoriously, you know, packed. Um, the traffic was at a standstill. And, mm. um, traffic was gridlocked from Johannesburg right up to Pretoria and we struggled, we really battled to, you know, to get to court by 10 o'clock. Uh, I think uh, on that day because of the rain we'd left at about 6 o'clock uh, in, the, in the morning you know, to make sure that we got to court uh, by, by 10 o'clock because of the rain. Mm -hmm. But it was worse than you can ever imagine. Bridges were being flooded, roads were flooded. And when we did eventually get to court, you know, they raised the fact that we that late. You know, I, I remember I said, um, the, one of the judges asked me, what time did you leave home? And I said, I left home at 6 o'clock this morning mm. to be at court at 10 o'clock. We only got to court at about half past 11. And he said, you should have left at 4 o'clock or you should have left at 3 o'clock, you yeah. know, like an arbitrary time. Um, uh, you know, we're not going to wait any longer. You know, uh, we're not going to entertain this. Uh, appeal today, we're striking it off from the roll and we're going to report to you, you know, for uh, your being late uh, today. And that's where it, where it ended. Desmond had a chance to finally pitch at the appeal, you know, and uh, get this sorted. And he messed that up. 
That must have been another reason to get Selwyn angry. <laughs> that probably pissed off Selwyn more. <laughs> <laughs> Desmond stepped down and actually passed duties over to advocate Bossiello. When Bossiello came on board, this is when Anthony's chances, for the first time, began to look up. Today, Bossiello is a judge based at the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein. He is a respected, high-powered man of the law. Here's Anthony. Justice Bossiello, you can talk to him and ask him, does he still recollect my case? Because when he checked my case, went through my case, he told my brothers that I, does not, I, I don't belong in prison. Bossiello is a gracious, humble man, and we emailed quite a bit. He's not able to speak to the press candidly because of his position, but he did say over email, and I quote, when I came to the case at the appeal stage, now this is Anthony's case, many unpleasant things had already occurred, about which I was not aware until the judges raised them with me in court. I was taken aback by all the complaints by the judges about how this case had been handled in the past. <laughs> That's pretty damning. Now, it sounds like the case is in shambles here, and all the judges know about this. Bossiello basically felt ambushed and that the case was out of his control. And according to Bossiello, he was confronted with an affidavit. Now, this is important outlining serious allegations of unprofessional conduct against advocate Desmond Brown. Allegations that Bossiello previously had known nothing about. What did Anthony actually want in this case? At this point, we are at the appeal stage. Okay, so Anthony now, more than anything, wants this new evidence to be heard. And to him, this new evidence is the conflicting statements from the police, the ones that we looked at in a previous episode. Anthony was convinced that this evidence was his lifeline. It was how he was going to get out of jail. It was how he was going to walk free. At that moment, I stood up in court. I waved my hands to the court. I said, no, I want the new evidence. Because I'm sure with the new evidence, I will definitely walk. I will go out. This new evidence is my life. I want that new evidence to submit it because that proves that the police were telling lies. According to Bossiello, he was forced to write a letter to the bar and the Judicial Service Commission to explain his role in the matter. Judge Southwood of the High Court back in October of 2000 said that four courts had rejected to hear Anthony's appeal due to the incompetence, carelessness and or lack of proper attention of the practitioners. The case was referred to the Society of Advocates of South Africa and the Law Society for investigation. Nothing came of this. Bossiello was absolved of any wrongdoing. But even today, Anthony's case, he says, leaves a bitter taste in his mouth. Bossiello, shortly afterwards, was made a judge, so he could no longer serve on the case. Here's Talani from the Witz Law Clinic. You see, striking off an appeal from the role means that that particular judge has not looked into the into the merits of the appeal. But there may have been an irregularity in placing the appeal on the role in the first place. So, for example, um, for example, if an appeal is set down, but there is no record of the proceedings, 
for example, if you're going to place an appeal on the roll, right, you need the record of the proceedings of the court that convicted and sentenced you. Because ultimately the judge must have regard to that proceedings and see whether or not what you're saying is appealable in the first place. Okay. So if the record is not there, then the judge has no choice but to strike it off the roll until such a time as you can provide the record and your appeal is properly heard. Because in this instance, there was a frustration with the lawyer. He was very late and things like that. Is that doable? Is that allowed to do that? It is unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But I can see a reason why a judge would strike an appeal of the role if the person who's meant to be moving the appeal, a person who's meant to be arguing the appeal on behalf of client, is not in court. Mm. What must the judge do? Yeah. But to strike it off. This is strike two against Anthony's justice. This case was mangled by many different people representing him. So at this point, his appeal is struck off the roll and he's left stranded. Bossiello did tell me over email, most importantly, I personally felt bad that Anthony was denied his constitutional right of access to justice when he was not at fault at all. That was Bossiello's opinion on this case. When you had another advocate after Bossiello, did, did that um, appeal, did it get struck off the roll or did it get denied? Refused? It went to court and then they refused to accept the new evidence. And then they said, no, for that I can go to Bloomfontein. The appeal wasn't refused so it could never be done again. You had another chance to take it to the... I had another chance because I was granted permission to go to Bloomfontein. This new lawyer was paid 11,000 rand up front. Since this time, I, I had such... I paid another lawyer to take my case further to Bloomfontein. He never did anything. Up to today, I never heard of him again. I gave him the money he went. He came to, for me to sign the documents he went. I never heard of him. He basically, I can say he ran away with my money. After Anthony's new lawyer ran away with the cash, the brothers, they lost hope in mounting an appeal. Here's Talani again. But it doesn't mean that just because it has been struck off the roll, that's the end of it. It just means that once you've corrected that irregularity, it can be placed back on the roll and properly argued. And people must appeal because, you know, as we say as lawyers, it is better to set free 100 um, guilty people than to convict one innocent man. Okay, is that a saying? Well, I mean, that's what we say when okay. we practice, yeah. Okay, so now after talking to Busiello and Desmond and getting sort of uh, the legal aspect of the case, what are your thoughts on this? I think Bossiello's right, that irrespective of Anthony being innocent or guilty, he was not given a fair run through the courts. He was not given justice. And then there is even a third strike, which is the poor evidence that links the murders to the BMW and even poor evidence that links the BMW to Anthony. And is the strike for Paul? Because it, it looks like we keep striking at poor <laughs> Anthony here. And at this point, uh, I remember clearly he's representing himself and he doesn't have a lawyer. Well, he wants one. He just can't afford it. I need to head back to Talani at the Vitz Law Clinic. He has a stack of papers on his desk that seems to be growing every time I visit him. Paul? Yes. <laughs> And thank you for waiting. Oh, sure. want to discuss Mr. De Friss's Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, let's see if we can find the papers. I brought them here on... Oh, you have them there? Yeah. Yes, Mr. Paul, talk to me. What's up? Anthony has given up trying to prove his innocence, at least for the time being. 
He has admitted guilt and is pushing his paperwork for parole towards the National Council on Correctional Services, or the NCCS, so they can review it and pass it on to the minister. He has admitted to the world that he's guilty. Well, eventually he had to. An important part of parole is you have to admit guilt for your crimes. It's the same for everyone. Remember in our first episode, when we were first put in contact with Anthony and he refused to say he was guilty? Well, since then he's been worn down. He's admitted to the murders, the attempted murders and the robbery. And to be honest, I don't think this impacts on his innocence. He just doesn't want this to prevent him from getting out. What is your recourse in jail if your parole, if the paperwork seems to be moving much slower and... and I would understand why your paperwork would move slower if you're a prisoner and you're doing it yourself. And, and is this a common problem? Is this a, something you say? I believe it's, it's a common problem. It's a common problem. Um, it's a common problem that if you're a prisoner, you do things on your own. It, it, it takes long because, number one, you may not know which, which procedures to follow. Number two, you may not know what time frames apply to different procedures. But generally, once legal representatives get involved, then things start to move. The things that I've done in prison, I've even got an external uh, psychologist who came to give programs inside here, who also put a report in for me. I've got that report from her that shows that the things that I've done here in prison, but people who didn't do all the things that I've done, they have been released. Yeah. So I don't know how they work, but the way correctional services work, it's like they are totally upside down. The responsibility to arrange this paperwork is actually not on Anthony. It's on the prison. And yet, Anthony and Selwyn spend their days organising these papers. Examples of this paperwork could be a statement from a psychologist or a social worker. At the moment, his papers are so delayed that he is taking the head of prison to court, among others. He says that the process of ignoring his parole is a willful failure to obey an order of the court. And that is contempt. If I was going to continue with a contempt, the head of prison was going to be held in contempt and all the stakeholders here of correctional services was going to be held and the possibility that they might have had to pay a fine or being uh, charged or so by the court would have been, it, it was there. Mm. So they were just playing with me to take the thing off the roll for contempt. Because here you've got a court order that says you must do something and you're not doing it. Okay. So what else could I do? Yeah. That's the point. Anthony is beginning to face pressure to drop his charges against the head of prison. Anthony tells me that pushing against DCS while in jail is like taking your mother to court and then coming to her in the evening and still asking her to give you food. A couple of days later, Anthony gets a call from the state lawyers and he buckles. He drops the case with the understanding that this will soften them when it comes to them considering his parole. But more time passes and so does the deadline for his paperwork. Dropping the case didn't soften them. It just made them think that he was soft. He took a gamble and lost. You know, part of me feels like he's been struggling back and forth and he at least has to win one shot, even if it means parole, because he's already had jail sentence for 17 years. You know, so I feel he's had the punishment, 
But now, will he at least win one battle out of all the challenges he's had against the law? You know, I thought you would think the opposite. I thought you'd be like, I want him to stay in there. I don't want him out on the streets. <laughs> not necessarily. It's it's not necessarily. It's not necessarily a fact of do I want him out on the streets, but it's 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 a matter of I'm on the fence of whether I want him or not. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that this is a man who continuously challenges his case. Will he ever win one of the cases? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go next week to Boxburg Correctional Centre. I'm going to look him in the eye and see if I can detect a vital clue as to if he is innocent or guilty. I also want to get to the bottom of the mystery around Jacques Marais, the police officer, and what happened to the other cops who were involved in his arrest. Where are they now? What have they been doing? And how do they remember Anthony DeFries? And all this will be on the last episode of Alibi. It is a finale. You've been listening to Alibi. This is the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. I'm Freddie Mabitella. And Alibi is investigated, produced, and written by Paul McNally. It is brought to you by the Vitz Justice Project, Vitz Radio Academy, and is part of the Citizen Justice Network. Editorial oversight was given by Franz Kruger and Nusheen Afani. Extra scripting and production by Elna Schutz. Mixed by Kutwano Serame. Additional editorial help by Gavin Haynes, Tom McNally, and Kyla Hemmonson. We are based in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find our podcast on alibi.org.za or on iTunes. Join us next week for our episode 8, the finale of Alibi, the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. Next time on Alibi, Paul heads to prison to visit Anthony. Who are you here to visit? Uh, Anthony DeFries. I'm tired. Anthony. Like this. V R I E S, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Which section? D. Section D.